Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Lauren, are we live? We're live, Dr. Cohen. We are live, Lauren? Yep, we're live. With? Another episode of Gross Anatomy Podcast, where what do we do, Dr. Cohen? Well, right now that's my dog snoring, but we d- we discuss the sight, smells, and sounds of medicine, how it relates to pop culture, movies, TV, books, the world around us. And I am Dr. Jason Cohen, and with me is my co-host and our producer, Lauren Taylor. And today we are very lucky to be joined very appropriately by Dr. Justin, and how do you say your last name? Human. 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 Like Humantashi. Like how many? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and and what's exciting about having Dr. Human? Did I say it right? You did. That's right. Yeah. What What's exciting is is this this is my November. Uh, it's it's November. It's Men's Health November, and so I deliberately grow ridiculous facial hair every November. I had a funny mustache, but it's very appropriate that we have you with us because you are a urologist which is, well, what, what is urology? No, so you, as urologists, we're, I mean, in simple terms, in layman's terms, we're plumbers. We're plumbers for the human body. Um, we deal with the urinary system, just drainage of the urinary system, the organs involved, the kidney, bladder, prostate, um, men and, and women. Genitals, right? Penis. Genitals. Oh, for yeah. sure. Gen- genitals, right. testicles. Yeah. Cancers, urinary obstruction, um, erectile dysfunction, all that. Now, so... In the olden days, urologists mostly dealt with men's stuff and gynecologists mostly dealt with women's stuff to some degree or no, or in the olden um, days? Yeah, I think, you know, certain things within the men were always urologists. Yeah. I mean, right. uh, I mean, male issues were always dealt by urologists. And then when it came to female stuff, certain things within the female realm, urologists dealt with, and then um, certain things the gynecologists dealt with. Right. Yeah. But, the, but the truth is urologists deal with men and women's exactly. urologic exactly. urinary system issues. But interestingly, you don't necessarily think of it that way, right? You'd think, especially men's health, you think, you, for some reason, you think more men, don't you? Or not necessarily? With, uh, uh, With urologists. Like, you think, like going to see you think urologist yes. oh, is for like sure, a man for sure. doctor. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a lot of people get that confused, right? Um, but, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, a lot of women, we see a lot of women, um, Everyone needs a urologist. Older men, older women, everyone needs a young, some young people, everyone at some point in their lives will need a urologist because of- Why, um, what, why would a regular person need a urologist for? What, what, what would everyone so, at some point in their lives need one for? All right, so, so I mean, here, so I'll, I'll start off with men, right? Why men would need it. Early on, men would need it because erectile dysfunction. I mean, most of the time- the Early on? Not, a lot of guys have erectile dysfunction. Right, right, and we'll right, get to that, right. right? We'll get to that. Yeah. Um, uh, as men age, you know, prost- urinary issues with their prostates, um, large prostates, prostate cancer, all the issues associated with male voiding, um, you need a urologist for. And then women, like urinary incontinence is huge. So women who've had uh, vaginal deliveries of kids, postmenopausal women, they leak, um, they have pelvic, pelvic organ prolapse, and that's what a urologist deals with. And then also, you didn't even mention kidney stuff and kidney stones, right? Oh yeah, that's a big like, one. That's, that touches everybody. That affects everybody. Right. So that, I, I would think, because I do parathyroid surgery, that's what I do a lot of. Right. And they get a lot of, they get a lot of kidney stones. So to some degree, I work with the urologist because they treat the kidney stones 
And often I'll try to prevent them from happening again by dealing with the parathyroid. Yeah. So we work in, we work in harmony. What these days, most urologists are still men, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. I think, I think amongst, you know, probably, I probably saw something last year. I think it's, I want to say it's upwards of 90% of urologists are men. And I think that's number one in terms of male dominated specialties. Yeah. Although I think more and more, to some degree, women are oh, starting yeah. to become for sure. urologists, right? For sure, for sure. And especially a woman patient may prefer a female urologist to some degree also, right? Is, are we seeing that tendency probably? Definitely, definitely, yeah. yeah. Definitely. And with gynecologists too. Like in the olden days, all the gynecologists were yeah, exactly. men. Exactly. And now it's much less. Right, right. So within urology, you've subspecialized, right? You, you yeah. have a specific thing you do now? Right. So, yeah, my subspecialty is men's health. And men's health in itself sounds like it's such a broad thing. But really, it's um, to simplify it, it's male sexual medicine and fertility, really, like male sexual and reproductive medicine. That's the way to think about it. Right. Do you actually do, did you actually do special training or extra fellowship after residency? I did. So we, I did a one-year fellowship in, in um in this men's health, in the men's health field. Yeah. It's actually called the men's health fellowship. It's not really, I mean, so there's different names to it. There's, it's, it's, you know, the, the common thing is male reproductive medicine and surgery. That's what it's called. Right. So yeah. just, just for our med students who listen and lay people. So how much school, med school, residency, how many years did it take you to get to where you're finally fully done training and a yeah. full thing? What, how many, how many years did it take you? So four of college, four medical school, uh, five of residency, and then one of fellowship. So what is that? 18, uh, nine, sorry, 14. Wow. So yeah, 14. how old were you when you finally finished fellowship? 33. 33 before 33. you were like finally starting your career. Yeah. I took a year off and you, I think you could have done it. You know, if you did it the fast way, you could have done it at 32, but I, uh, I took some time off. When did you take that year off? Just after college. So I took some time okay. off, just worked. I worked, I was here living in LA. I went to UCLA for undergrad. So I just hung out in Los Angeles, um, applied for okay. medical school. So what, what, do you, what, what are the kind of stuff that you tend to deal with now? What, what do you do? Is it a lot of vasectomies? Is that like a big thing you do or not necessarily? So any urologist could do a vasectomy, right? Any urologist can, but um, vasectomy reversals are, are right up my alley. Um, so that's you need to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So that, guy that's decides. It. So guy decides, hey, I'm done having kids, and then gets married again, or is what he and his wife are like, have this second honeymoon period, and they're like, wow, I want to have kids again. Yeah, exactly. Or in LA, the more common thing is uh, they find another wife, right? right? They've had their fun in their 20s and 30s with one wife, and then. You know, they move on to somebody else and that, that new partner wants more kids. So how, how easy is it? How extensive of a surgery is it to reverse it? And how, how successful is it? So it, it all depends on, it all depends the, the time, right? The timing from there, the vasectomy. Generally, if it's under 10 to 15 years, your success rate is pretty high in the high 90s. Really? You know, anywhere, almost, yeah. Obviously, it depends on who's doing the surgery, right? Right. Um, it's, a, it's a microscopic surgery. Uh, under looking under high high magnification, basically bringing in. I mean, you know what the vas is. The vas is the lumen of the vas is tiny. It's very very small. It's like one of those baby straws, drink straws, like kind of right. 
Even smaller, even like smaller. A stir store. Even smaller than a stir yeah. small. Okay. Yeah, even smaller. The, the lumen is even smaller than that stir. Wow. And then you really, you just, you basically have to, under a microscope, you have to reanastomose it, reattach it, tie them together, um, provide supporting sutures around it. And then. Uh, Do you leave sense? Do you put something in to keep no, it open? No, no. You keep, there's no, no, no. Yeah, but they're working, they're, you know, the technologies, they're doing different things with technology in terms of a reversible, um, they're injecting collagens into the collagen um, uh, matrices, matrices into the vas, and then as, as a form of vasectomy. And then when they want the revert, reversal, they give the enzyme that breaks it down. Wow. So my wife then, my wife is a cosmetic injector, so she could start doing vasectomies and reversals then? <laughs> if her aim is good, yeah. Depends on her. Wow. And, and is it is it given under like fluoroscopy or something or it's no 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 so so this is more common in i I think uh, it's it's in india that they would do there's a study in india that they're doing it i don't think i haven't heard of anyone in the united states doing this quite yet that's pretty interesting yeah but um, but most of the time you said it's 90 percent successful the reversal yeah i mean uh, if you're less i mean if you're if you're like 30 years out right if you're 30 years out it's a different story right Right. so so the thing that complicates this the thing that makes it um, a little bit more interesting is what you do is when you um, when you open up the vas, right? Because you clip the vas during a vasectomy on the testicular end, on the bottom end. So when you open it, when you release it, it really depends. Depending on what it looks like, what the fluid consistency is, that's when you make a decision on whether to bring the vas together, or you could do something called a vasoepididymostomy, where you attach the va- one or portion of the vas to the epididymis, and that's mm-hmm. technically a little bit more challenging, but. Um, that's you make that decision based on um, what the fluid looks like. You reverse both sides, or you just reverse one. Yeah, both, both sides. My follow-up question for that is: Has anyone ever, after a second, you know, reversal, been like, "Okay, now I'm ready to get snipped"? Have you had people who have who have reversed it and then been like, "Okay, now I'm done"? I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that, but I've seen it in some TV shows. People talk about that. Yeah, oh, really? There's an office episode. Where exactly. Michael, Michael Scott. Scott. <laughs> three times. It's like snip, snap, snip, snap, yeah. snap. Oh, really? With Jan. Yeah. With, with Jan. Right. I never exactly. saw that. Oh, but cool. um, is there any health risk to like having it reversed like more than no. one? No. Mm-mm. No. No. I mean, it doesn't. What's... So the testicle. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. No, you go. Well, I was going to say the testicle does two things, right? Sperm and testosterone. And the VAS really just alters the sperm production. It doesn't do anything to the testosterone production. So, um, you know, the going back and forth, it, you know, it may hurt the balls a little bit just because you're having so many procedures down there. But in terms of testosterone production, it doesn't compromise that at all. So talk to us about men's health. What, what do you do from a, a men's health standpoint? Like, how do you keep, like Lauren had asked me last week on our podcast, like, what can I do to prevent uh, men's cancers. And I said, I didn't know. I said, you know what? We're lucky. We're going to have Dr. Human come and tell us next week. Yeah. So, um, so the men like male cancers, the cancers we deal with, right? Prostate cancer, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, um, are the main ones, bladder and those types. But there's nothing you could really do to prevent these cancers, right? There's things you could do to um, screen for them and get ahead of, you know, just make sure, screen in terms of blood work with your physician, but obviously things you do at home. So testicular cancer, just something as simple as the, the exam, that, you know, when you're in the shower, just do a testicular exam on yourself, still feel if you have any nodularities, abnormal texture to the testicle. Um, 
Weird lumps or bumps. Yeah, lumps or bumps, exactly. But that doesn't exactly. that that helps for for picking something up, right? It doesn't help prevent anything. I mean, to, for our cancers, I would say the best thing to do is lifestyle type stuff, right? Right. Right. It's, it's the lifestyle things, minimize your smoking. For us, a lot of our cancers are smoking related, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the, the bladder cancers are, are, are smokers. So if you, st- you know, don't smoke, healthy diets, exercise, get good sleep. What about, what about like the silly thought of like use it or lose it? Like is there any benefit sure. to frequent, uh, you know, regular ejaculation as opposed to abstaining in terms of cancer risk? Has anyone ever looked at that? There was, you know, there was something, there was something that said if you, there was a study that, um, I think it was in medical school when it came out, it said if you ejaculate more than 21 times a month, you have a decreased risk of prostate cancer, right? This is purely an observational study, right? It was observational. So take it for what it's worth. Right. Um, um, But no, I I mean, I wouldn't say there's a correlation between ejaculation and prostate cancer, but there is like the user. Well, what about it when testicular it cancer? What about testicular cancer? No, now with testicular, with erectile dysfunction, I would, I would say yes. I would say, what yes. is that? That's like a sign, a symptom of something or no, no. What I mean, it's like, if you don't like, you know, ED, a big thing with erectile dysfunction is um, like, really, if you don't use it, you lose it. Like your penis will not be the same. If you're not using it, if you're not getting good erections, you're not going to have a good, you know, you're, you're going to have a smaller, Length and smaller girth size penis. Huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. And what yeah, is so the re- yeah? So the reason is like for the reason is guys, right? At nighttime, guys, they have you know four to five times you're getting you're getting erections, right? You're getting these cycles of erections. Sometimes you wake up, you know, in the middle of the night with it, or in the you know, the morning in the morning when you wake up. Morning wood. Morning wood. Morning wood, mm-hmm. right? And that's what it is. Your body's just cycling it. It's filling. So the tissues, the tissues of the penis are they're smooth muscles and they need oxygenation. You're, when your body does that, it's providing those t- tissues with you know, nutrients and that stretch. Now, so the way to think about this is we do a lot of prostate cancer surgery, right? And the way we do it is we do a, using a robot, we take out the prostate. And one of the risks with that surgery is erectile dysfunction. And it's usually transient, short-lived but over time, over months, the, the nerves, the nerves that are responsible for erections, they start to regenerate and they start to function again. But during that time, a lot of guys, what they'll say is after sur- after they get their erection six, 12 months later, they're like, look, my penis was a lot smaller. My penis was a lot uh, smaller in length and shorter and I mean, smaller in girth. So what we do now is we have a whole protocol for these patients to get them back to make sure that they have good erections, even while their nerves are recovering. What is that? What's the protocol? Um, it's, I mean, it's something we do at, at Tower Urology, but um, it's basically you put them on daily supplements and then you put, use a vacuum erection device to basically rehab the penis. Like in uh, Austin Powers. That's right. That's right. So that thing is a real thing, the Austin that Powers. That thing is penis. a real thing. I wish I had one. I wish I had It really one. is a real thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and there's benefit to the penis pump? For sure. For sure. In You're certain settings. You're being serious. I'm being serious. I'm being serious. To, to make it bigger and healthier? No, 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 no. To maintain. It doesn't make your penis bigger. It doesn't make it, it bigger. Ma- no, it doesn't make it bigger. But it, it just prevents help- it from getting, it prevents it from shrinking. And it helps with erectile dysfunction to some degree as well? Yeah. So a lot of guys, a lot of guys will use the, the they'll pump it up with a vacuum erection device and then they'll put a, uh, a penile ring at the base of the penis and it keeps the blood flow there. Then they go about their business. Right. Yeah. But, but just using that pump, does it help prevent erectile dysfunction? Or it's just um, treatment to use the penis. 
you know, so theoretically, in combination with other things, it could help um, delay the progression of erectile dysfunction. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And then you hear and and you know in in out there that there are things to make a penis bigger and stuff like that, without surgery, without actually doing surgery. Is that true or not? Um, you know, I guess there's so many things out there, right? Like medications, I would say unlikely, highly, highly unlikely. There's certain things like uh, if you mechanically stretch the penis over, like if you put like a 10 gram weight on your penis over months, it will stretch probably. You'll get a couple centimeters potentially. Hmm. Um, but the surgical, the surgical options that could also help. The surgical ones make more sense. Then I heard that there are also injectors now are doing, you know, just like patients are getting fillers in their butts and all they're giving fillers into the penis too now. Have you, have you heard right. about that or seen that? For as sure. Well? Yeah, yeah. You, you see it. I mean, we, we typically see the complications from, um, you know, there's dermatologists and plastic surgeons who inject it. Um, but the only thing with that is the matrix that they're injecting, it, some, some of it's getting absorbed by the body over time. So then you start to develop these nodularities or, or, or you know, the, the, the penile skin and it doesn't but that could be added pleasure. You're right. You're absolutely right. I was going to say that. Absolutely right. right. It could be added pleasure. So it could it could help. But but you've seen some complications from those. Yeah. So yeah, guys will come in. They're like, look, it just I have all these weird nodulators all over my penis. Like I gotta get these out. Hmm. So you'd have to remove them. I I have a very close friend who who's my age. I think you're significantly younger. Who's my age? Um, who I don't know why developed. Uh, the inability to urinate now, and and it's been years, and he just has to catheterize himself. Yeah, and, he, and he's a young guy. I mean, he, you know, he's fifty-ish, and he just—that's his life now. Have you have you seen young guys that age just develop that? And he's otherwise healthy. No other. Issues. Otherwise healthy. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And he's been, and the guy's been to a lot of different specialists and, and he's walking around just, you know, it, you know, he'll travel, he'll bring catheters with him. He'll do that. He brings catheters with him. Wow. Big prostate. Do you know if he has a big prostate? I didn't check it, but I, I don't think it's, <laughs> I don't think, you know, I mean, I don't think it's, I mean, he's seen a lot of people and people, even some people I know he's seen and, you know, they had mentioned possibly doing, um, what what's the stimulus? Euro, Euro Eurodynamics. No, he's had he's tried Eurodynamics, but the external stimulator, the mm-hmm. uh, Interstim, yeah, Interstim. But I I I think they they didn't quote him, you know, that much of a success, so he didn't he didn't opt for it. Have you seen that kind of thing? I mean, generally, there's young guys could have this, but yeah. the way to think about it, you need to you need a bladder and a prostate to pee, so it's usually one of those things. One of those things are the culprit. But if you're saying yeah. that. Yeah, they've done Eurodynamics. Um, yeah, that's weird. It is weird. At that point, you got to think of something. It could be something neurologic that's preventing his bladder from contracting. And that that's got to be a tough thing in a young guy to be. You know, you see it. You tend to see that more in the elderly happen, right? For but sure, not for so sure. A young guy. Yeah, yeah, that's the beauty of urology. Look, a lot of this stuff is quality of life, right? We're dealing with quality. Of, you know, luckily most most of the things we deal with aren't life and death for the most part. For the most yeah. part. So that's the nice thing about this field too. But so prostate, let's talk about the prostate a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Getting up to pee every night, all night. What What's the story about that for guys? What's the story about getting up multiple times in the middle of the night to pee? 
So typically, I mean, not not for everybody, but typically the that is a result of an enlarged prostate. And what does that mean exactly? So you need you need the bladder, you need the prostate, um, you need an open prostate, and you need a strong bladder in order to push things out. So what what happens is as men age, the prostate grows in size, and it just doesn't grow outwards. The lumen, the donut, if you will, right? It closes in on the lumen too. The donut hole close, slowly closes in and it decreases the outflow, the size of the outflow. Uh, so what does that mean? The, the bladder is still functioning the way it did for you know, 10, 20 years ago, but it's, not, it's pushing against resistance. So rather than emptying your bladder all the way, you start to leave 50, 50 milliliters, 100 milliliters, 200 milliliters. And before, where you, you're, you, every, every time you went to the bathroom, you're, you're waiting to fill up 500 milliliters, and then you went. This time, if you're not releasing that bottom 200, you just every every time you fill up that with three hundred milliliters, you have to go to the bathroom. So it's it's um but that's it's what not, it is. I mean, look, it's go not ahead, go ahead. Problem, sorry. It's how do you know if it's a problem? Like, how do you know if you're peeing too much? Like, because everyone drinks different amounts. Like, how how do right, you know right. it's a problem? Well, um, I mean, obviously, it's you have to ask the patient, right? Like, everyone's definition of every uh, how it affects their quality of life is different. So. Okay. Um, most guys, I think most guys, their main, the main, main concern is when they're waking up four or five times a night, they're like, look, I'm exhausted. I'm not getting good sleep because of the fact that I keep waking up. And it's not just, they wake up and, you know, they wake up and then they go, they go to the bathroom because they're awake. It's they're waking up because they have to eat. That's the problem that a lot of these guys experience. But the good thing is there's so many treatment options for this because BPH is so common, okay. so common. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be like a larger issue. It can just be like, you can take a pill or you can. Yeah. Yeah. So now there's pills for this that help. And then if there's not, pills don't work, there's office procedures. If those don't work, there's operative procedures. Okay. What always intrigued me is that you urologists seem to like to perform a lot of your procedures on the men while they're awake and, (laughs) and you perform them while they're awake, almost like, because you can, I mean, like a vasectomy is done often on just a sedated patient and like even yeah. even like uh cysto you know putting scopes in the penis yeah. is done i mean you can do it awake but just because you can do it awake does it really mean you should do it awake you know it's funny that you say that because that's our norm we really I know. do everything we really do everything awake and it just, and anytime a male comes to me and tells me they saw one of you guys, I'm like, really? What? I don't know. I, I mean, if it's me, what? You got to put me to sleep. They're like, no, I go to the office. They do the thing. I'm like, no, I, I don't, why? I don't understand why. And most guys could tolerate it. I mean, I, I, I know everybody. Could, just because you could tolerate it. Yeah. I don't yeah. understand why, why it's the mentality of urology that they have to do it awake. I, I don't, it, it blows my mind. We could tolerate a weight colonoscopy. It's probably cheaper on insurance, right? No, I mean, we could tolerate an awake colonoscopy, but these days, if you're in a good place, they put you totally out for it. But you got to pay for that. So maybe people don't want to pay for that. I don't know. I'll pay for it. But, uh, right? I, let me ask we'll you a question. We'll numb you up good. We can numb you up. We'll numb I you don't up want, good. I don't, it, let me ask you a question. If you needed uh, some in-office quote, urologic procedure. You want to be awake? I think, listen, I'm a big believer in karma. So I've done this to enough guys. I think it's going to come back to me. I deserve it. At this point, I deserve it. I know, but do you actually want to be awake? I do. I uh, it always blows my mind that you got, the guy's like, yeah, we just scope him in the office. I'm like, 
what? But do you give them yeah. the option to be asleep or are these, it's just normal to be? No, oh. it's not, no, right? it's pretty much, it's the norm. It's the norm okay. you just do it. Listen, we, but we, give the, we give the patient the answer right there and then, right? Rather than take them to the OR and book them for the OR, they get their answer right there. But if ever I'm coming to you, you've got to figure I'll out put, a way to get me to sleep. We'll put the smallest, we'll put the smallest scope and the smallest catheter in for you. How's That's that? That's not enough. You've got to put me down. <laughs> it's still we'll, tie, we'll tie two catheters together for you. How's that? There you go. There you go. So tell us about some other men's health things and issues that, Lauren, you got some yeah. stuff? No, yeah. yeah, no, just because November is about testicular cancer and prostate cancer. So it's just wondering, I guess testicular cancer is just like checking yourself. Like how often should you check yourself? How do you know, like how can you know to get it in time? Or how? Right, like in women, in yeah. women we know you have to get a mammogram. So what's the equivalent? What, what, what do men do? So for testicular cancer, it's self-examinations, um, you know, once a month, once every couple months, making sure there's no nodularities like we discussed. Um, generally, when it comes to testicular, testicular cancer, you peak, you peak in different uh, age groups. You generally peak in your your youth, um, um, before your twenties, before your twenties and your thirties, um, and then there's a peak later in like in the sixties. But that's a different type of that's a different type of testicular type cancer. When it comes to prostate cancer. Um, I mean, family history is very important, right? First degree relative, father, a brother. Um, if you had any family that, history, you see, yeah, like for fathers sure. Fathers that give it to their, like their sons. Have, yeah. Um, yeah. There's a huge, okay. yeah, so anytime, any, so when it comes to prostate cancer, there's a huge genetic, um, component to it. So African-Americans, number one, are at high risk. And then p- patients who have first degree relatives, um, with a history of prostate cancer. And then now what we're seeing is, um, like there's a big environmental component to this. I, I'll say like, I feel like over the last couple of months, like you've see, I've seen young firefighters, like a 48 year old firefighter today um, with bad prostate cancer. So there's an environmental aspect to this as well. Um, and that's, I mean, again, that's just something to be mindful of. This is like the, the second or third firefighter I've seen who's had really bad prostate cancer actually. Oh, that's so sad. So, yeah. so environmental family history, like when, like if you have a family history, like what age should you start coming to? Yeah, the- good question. So, so, so generally, I think most men. So the PSA got so PSA is prostate specific antigen. Um, that's one of the the uh, biomarkers we use to to uh, check for prostate cancer. It's a blood test, and um, you know the guidelines are always changing. You know, people say different things, but I think it's safe for most guys at the age of forty to get a baseline PSA, right? Just get a baseline PSA, see where you stand relative to other, you know, relative to what the norm is. And then at that point, you can make a decision in terms of trending it, whether annually, whether every couple of years. But once you hit 55, it should be very rare. Every, every year, you should check um, a PSA with the digital rectal exam as well. No matter what, at age 55. <laughs> yeah, I would, but I would say earlier than 55. I really would. You would just, right. you know. And then there's, you know, in addition to family history, just like uh, the breast, the BRCA gene, yeah, 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 yeah. Also, could predispose to prostate cancer as well. Yeah, exactly. BRCA one and two. Yeah. Right. What you know the the incidence of of breast cancer is fairly high if a woman is BRCA or men man uh, is BRCA positive. You know, in one of them it could be as high as forty to sixty percent, and one of them it's even higher. Yeah, it's just somebody again. Another reason to be mindful of you know regular PSA checks. Or you know, or senior urologist earlier. I mean, you know, you, you could see your primary care doctor just get a PSA check too. And how much does a rectal exam really 
tell the examiner? It, you know, if, if someone's PSA is normal, are you, how often do you actually really feel, a, not, not a big prostate, because that I know you could feel, but a cancer, could you, how easy is that to feel? I mean, it has to be, it has to be. So prostate cancer typically is, so the prostate sits very close to the rectum. Um, so when you put your finger in, you could feel it underneath the, the rectal wall. Um, prostate cancer itself, it could be on any part of the prostate, but generally it's in that posterior portion that's abutting the rectal wall. I mean, I think, I think most of the time it's, uh, you don't feel it, I would say, but it's something we do because historically that's the only thing we had to, you know, the only thing we had PSA is relatively new. Have you um, ever actually felt a new prostate can Have you ever done a rectal exam and been like, Oh, there's a prostate cancer. Yeah, I've done. I mean, I've, I've done. I've seen patients where you do rectal. You, I mean, you're going to get a PSA on them anyway. No, no, but you've then, diagnosed it by rectal by rectal exam and been like, "Wow, there's a." Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, a handful of times. Right, right, right. I mean, you right. definitely could tell the size of a prostate on rectal exam. For sure, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and but you know they they teach you. I I mean, I guess with you guys, it's part of the exam. You know, every man gets a gets a rectal exam, eh? Um, but, you know, in training too, you know, if a patient comes in with abdominal pain, you're supposed to do a rectal exam too to feel for, you know, rectal masses or anything like that too. But I, I think the incidence, you know, I've, I've occasionally felt a rectal cancer or, or a GYN cancer through, you know, on GYN exam, you know. On um, biomanual. Um, yeah. But the incidence is pretty low. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, CT scans and MRIs, right. those things have revolutionized the exactly. physical exam. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And now, and prostate cancer is kind of like, so I do thyroid cancer a decent amount too. And thyroid cancer is becoming more and more to some degree managed a little bit like prostate cancer in terms of there's a non-operative arm of thyroid cancer. There's an option to kind of do active surveillance, mm. which is an interesting thing in cancer. So what, what is that in prostate cancer? Oh, I didn't know you guys do that in thyroid. That's interesting. A little bit. So for us... Um, for us, uh, yeah, so active surveillance, active surveillance is new, right? So the same way, you know, we're probably, yeah. you know, a couple of years ahead of you guys in that sense. Yeah. So, so back in the day, anyone who had any type of prostate cancer, so the way prostate cancer stage is the Gleason score. And it's just, that, that all depends on uh, basically risk stratus, risk stratifying yourself, low, intermediate, and high risk. So anyways, back in the day, if you had any type of prostate cancer, they took it out, right? You're out. Now we have a lot more data. We have a lot more data on prostate cancer. So low grade anywhere like Gleason sixes and some Gleason, you know, Gleason sixes, you could observe for the most part, you could observe, um, obviously with shared decision-making with the patient, but you could observe and, you know, um, regular PSA checks, regular physical, regular DREs. And every once in a while you get a prostate MRI as well, just to make sure everything's okay. What um, percentage of men that you say, Hey, we could just keep an eye on your prostate cancer. What percentage at least that you've dealt with have said, okay, let's just watch it. Um, that's a good question. I'd say, well, it depends if they're Gleason sixes, I'd say you know, majority of Any them. Any patient that you said, Hey, yeah, it's not yeah, unreasonable uh, to watch. Yeah, majority of them, majority of them. Yeah. And, and the interesting reason is because of the side effects of surgery, right? They exactly don't want right. well, surgery and radiation. Right? right. And then, yeah, that's what it is. Exactly. Right. No what? one wants to potentially have sexual dysfunction. And no one wants to have leaking. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And the radiation just wrecks havoc in that area. As you know, you know, wrecks havoc in the, 
um, to the rectal wall, you know, you get the colitis, you get issues with the, with the bowel, all that stuff. Aren't there less, less invasive or less aggressive pro- approaches now, treatment approaches to prostate cancer? Yeah, so, so they've, they've come out with, um, it's in clinical trials now, doing what's called high-intensity high 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 intensity frequency ultrasound. Yeah. I think you're, and it's, so, so the way it works is, so you have two lobes to the prostate, right? Two lobes. If you have prostate cancer in one lobe, only one lobe, right now what they're doing is, and I can only speak for here, um, what they're doing is uh, do hemigland ablation is what it's called. They're using that ultrasound. And it's very, it's, you know, all, the software basically figures out exactly the size and burns the whole thing. It burns the whole thing. Um, the risk, if you do full gland, right, if you do the whole gland ablation is you get that urethra, that prostatic urethra gets scarred down, you get strictures. You have the potential of getting erectile dysfunction as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that's a less invasive, aggressive approach. And theoretically, less complications if you just do one side? Yeah, I mean, the data is still coming out on it, right? Um, I think USC published a study a couple months ago where it said pretty good. I mean, two years out, the PSAs were pretty low. So Who does that procedure? Um, surgeons or radiologists or a combination or... So um, it's really a machine that's doing it under the you know, under the supervision of the urologist. Um, the radiologists are obviously involved because they're the ones who are um, examining the MRI for the uh, um, the size and everything, and making sure that the size fits appropriately into the software. It's kind of a multi multidisciplinary thing. But the urologists are the ones who are watching it. So, what operation were you doing tonight? Uh, I was doing a penile prosthesis. Ah, yeah. So this How is common like, is and, that? Uh, penile prostheses are pretty common. I mean, they're pretty common. Um, on average, um, you know, you could, you could do upwards of, you know, on average, you could do one a week, basically. Um, hmm. And they're different um, kinds these days, right? There's a kind with a pump. There's a kind that's like. Yeah, yeah. Somewhat, so, but the main, the, I mean, the best, I mean, the, the, the gold standard right now, the best one is the three-piece. There's a, there's a reservoir that sits in your abdomen. There's a pump that sits in your scrotum and then there's two cylinders that sit in your penis and you pump the fluid from the reservoir goes into the penis and gives pump you your scrotum. You pump your scrotum. Is it uncomfortable to kind of pump your scrotum? Like it, initially after surgery. Yeah. But over the course of a few weeks that that goes away. Huh? And then, and then how do you deflate it? There's, so the, the whole pump is two buttons. It's a pump. And then there's a button on top that release a release valve. Wow. Yeah, that's it. So they're actually, they're developing, what's, what's interesting is this company that we, um, um, one of the companies that does these penile prostheses, Boston Scientific, what they're doing is they're developing an e-pump, an electric pump, or a, like basically Bluetooth enabled pump. Wow. So, yeah, in a few years, you'll be able to use your phone to say how rigid you want your penis to be. But you'd have to change your battery periodically, right? Yeah, but, but kind of like the, kind of like the inner sim. Um, mm-hmm these like pacemaker babies, like they, these pacemaker batteries, they last a long time, but yeah, you, you'd have to exchange every once in a while. Huh. You yeah. know, interestingly, the same anesthesiologist who put me to sleep for my eye, for my LASIK surgery, his dog got fixed. His, his male dog got castrated, right? Fixed. And he had prosthetic balls placed for his dog, for his dog's self-esteem. Yeah, well, <laughs> what a good owner. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I yeah I, yeah. I don't know. I think maybe he has too much money. That seems crazy. Who knows? Maybe yeah, insurance doesn't cover that one. <laughs> he just loves his dog. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
So um, for Movember and men's health, do you think men are getting like better at talking about like these issues that they're facing, like erectile dysfunction, like fertility, like different things? Are men being more open? Because we talked to an OBGYN and we were talking about women's health and how women are finally like, okay, talking about like sexual things. And do you think men are growing the same way? I think, I think for sure. I think uh, at least, you know, uh, my generation, the generation before me, I think like my father's generation, they're probably still a little bit of a taboo with the, with that uh, group. But um, definitely, I think men are more, I mean, are they where they should be? No. But, um, you know, erectile dysfunction, low low testosterone, low libido, these, these are things everyone experiences. So erectile dysfunction, 40% of men at the age of 40 have some form of erectile dysfunction, right? At the age of 50, 50% of men. So it's very, very common. And the beauty of this is- 60%? 50%, yeah. What about at 60 Sixty percent. That's what you say. Every decade, you go up ten percent. Do you really? Yeah. Huh. So, yeah. so what's, yeah. it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's normal. Yeah. It's normal. It's part of. It. And the good thing is, like in twenty twenty modern medicine, we have so many options. Not just the pills. And the pills do do a great job for a lot of guys. But after that, there's so many options in terms of ways you could. I always tell patients, I promise you, you will have an erection, a good, satisfying erection, some way, somehow. It all depends on how aggressive you want to be. Because there's tons of options. Tons. What pills are, are the better ones these days? Is it uh, Viagra? I mean, there's Viagra, Cialis, Dendra. Um, right. Those are all out there. Uh, depends, you know, Cialis is Cialis. The good thing about it, it kills tubers with one stone. So it's older patients, it helps with their urination as well. It helps open up the prostate. Oh, so wow. guys who guys who have nocturia, like the waking up at nighttime because they're not emptying the bladder, this helps open it up and it gives them good directions. How often do you see priapism, you know, an erection that won't go away? Um, I mean, this part of town, yeah, in this part of town, we see it pretty common um, um, because guys are passing around. um, So Trimix, right? Trimix is a common, it's it's an erect, it's an injection of erectogenic agents, right? Trimix, so three of them. Uh, But there's different combinations of these, uh, what we call uh, like, intracavernosal injections basically you inject with the insulin syringe into your penis anyway guys are just passing around these vials not knowing what dose to use and they inject they have a great time for a couple of days and then they come in with the rock hard erection that's painful wow yeah. and what do you do you basically have to suck the fluid out yeah that's the worst part about being a urologist that that uh, you milk it out you just put a needle at the tip of the penis and you milk them out is there any risk to leaving it with their you with the penis oh, yeah. yeah so, so yeah so it does so you say at 24 hours if you've had an erection for 24 hours there's a 95% chance 90% chance that you'll never have an, a spontaneous erection again wow yeah yeah so some yeah. of these guys yeah some of these guys are coming in after 72 hours why would you inject something someone just gives you that's crazy like uh, some some people just like to party yeah, so. interesting wow i had another question i can't think of it um what else lauren um for testicular cancer would you say like it's the it's increasing like prostate cancer you're saying more you're seeing more environmental factors that those rates might be increasing too like i'm wondering if like people being more aware i guess it's like helping their survival rate but would you say in general like the numbers aren't going down of people that get like testicular cancer and prostate cancer? Um, you know, prostate cancer, I think uh, we've done a good job for the most part. I mean, there's some, there's some um, um, 
controversy with prostate cancer, at least over the last couple of years, because the PSA got like the screening guidelines had changed. And then we weren't catching early on early prostate cancer. And now everything, everything we see is high, um, high grade. So, uh, but prostate cancer in general, I think we have a good sense of how to, um, diagnose it, at least how to screen for it with PSA testing. It's good. It's not great, but it's good. Testicular cancer. Um, yeah, you know, the, the exams are important. Um, but that's really much, that's pretty much it with it, with, with testicular cancer. Um, family history, a little bit, plays a little bit of a role, not so much with prostate, not so much to the same extent as prostate cancer, but um, testicular cancer generally is pretty rare, right? It's, it's definitely less common, less, less common than prostate cancer, that's for sure. I remember my questions. One is, and I'm going to say them both uh, just so I don't forget them. One is cannabis and pot related to men's health, what your thoughts are and in terms of libido, this, that. And then the other is diet and specifically if you, did you watch the movie Game Changers? Did you see the movie Game Changers? I did, yeah, yeah. Right, and there's that whole part of the two young guys, one on a plant-based diet, one on a meat-based diet, uh, and the plant-based diet kid had better erections that night. So address both of those questions and then we'll wrap. Yeah, so um, uh, what was the first one? It was about... uh, Matt oh, yeah. So, yeah. so, so that's a, so that's a great one because it, it's um, there's conflicting there's conflicting data on this. But so scientifically, I'll tell you scientifically, it de- doesn't affect your spermatogenesis. It doesn't affect your sperm counts. But what it could do is it could decrease your testosterone. Just it decreases the luteinizing hormone, right? Theoretically, it, it, it decreases it, and it could also increase your estradiol levels, right? So testosterone will. So basically, what it does is it, it could decrease your testosterone levels by pushing it towards estrogen. Right. But um, there's some studies that say guys are actually more horny when they're high. So um, so they have better sexual sexual satisfaction as well. So that's mixed. OK, it's a mixed data. So it may increase libido, but there definitely is an incidence of what's called gynecomastia, which is exactly. So that's ex- increased estradiol levels. Yeah. Male breast development in pot smokers. Right. Exactly. Is there data behind that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there is. And then regarding game changers, um, yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, it completely makes sense. I mean, I think so. The way to think about it, what erections to simplify an erection, all you need is blood flow, right? An erection is purely blood flow. So um, these guys plant meat based diets, typically higher cholesterol levels, higher fatty content levels. So what happens? Those clogs, the clogs get slightly more clogged than the the, the pipes get slightly more clogged than the guy who's on a plant based diet who has decreased. Their foods have decreased cholesterol levels, less um, fat associated with it as well. So they have wider, their, their pipes are open. So are you vegan? No. no. <laughs> Not because you're still young. Give it a few years. You're going to be vegan. Are you vegan? I try to be as plant-based as possible. Yeah? yeah. I strive for it. Yeah. I, yeah I've this- been religious at certain points, and I find when I'm more religious, everything is better. Really? You really feel a difference? I really do. Yeah. I have really? less aching pains. It may just be mental, but I, I just feel I just feel better. I, I'm sure there's a mental component to it, but I definitely do. When I'm, when I mean, I'm, look, you're not the first person. Everyone says it. A lot of people yeah. say it. Yeah. But then I heard on the radio today some study of vegetarians and pescatarians have more fractures than carnivores. I heard on the radio some study today. So... So that in my wise words, Lauren, nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah, yeah. 
any other parting thoughts? Uh, I'm glad we uh, are getting to meet one another here. I, I, I look forward to working with you more. Likewise. Uh, Likewise. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for letting oh, me come on this thing. We've always wanted to talk to a urologist, so thank you. It's been very informative. We could, could pick your brain some more, but yeah, we'll let you go. Thank you very much. No, this is great. Thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Looking forward to right. connecting at the hospital. Likewise, likewise. All right, guys. Have a good night. Good night. Thanks. Take care. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.